Hello, sports fans. This is Jeremy Taché, and this is Miami Miked Up, presented by Cold Blue Vodka. If you haven't tried Cold Blue yet, head over to your nearest Total Wine or select Sam's Club's locations to pick up an ice sculpture bottle. It's the perfect refreshing drink to enjoy on its own or in your favorite cocktails, mojitos, Bloody Marys, martinis, Moscow mules, and more. Cold Blue Vodka is gluten-free, crafted from American-sourced corn, and distilled eight times. Easy to sip on, enjoyable, and the best part, no hangover the next day. I repeat, no hangover the next day. Our friends over at Cold Blue Vodka gave us a promo code for our listeners. Head over to coldbluevodka.com and use the code BALLY20 for 20% off. That's one word, B-A-L-L-Y-2-0, for 20% off your online order. Cold Blue Vodka, redefining the blue-collar lifestyle. Now, let's get to the show. Hey friends, welcome to this episode of Miami Miked Up, our final episode of the year 2021. And so, for our end of the year episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. No new interview this week. Instead, we'll format this as a top 10 moments of Miami Miked Up in the year 2021. The reality is, is there's not really a particular order. I've sort of just grouped some videos together. And to be totally truthful, I have total guilt about some of the clips that did not get included. So if you're not included, just know I'm beating myself up over it for the next, you know, six months, probably. But let me say a couple of things uh, before we get started here. This year has been a, a total dream come true in, in so many ways professionally and the support for this podcast is number one amongst them. So let me get a couple of thank yous out of the way before we get to the format of this show. I hope you guys will listen to them because these people all do mean a lot to me, but we will get to the actual meat of the podcast in, in just a second. So let me start with this. Thank you to everyone at Bally Sports Florida and Sun for taking a chance on me this year. The trust, the support that you guys had in me to launch this project and others it's been really, really, really fun, and, and I can't wait to continue into 2022. Specifically, let me just shout out Eric Esteban, who helped me launch this project, his trust on this as my direct supervisor, believing in me, advocating for me, and also his appearances in the first few episodes, if you guys were listening. So shout out again to Eric Esteban at Bally Sports Florida and Son. And I also want to thank every single guest that we've had. So the Miami Marlins, the Miami Heat, the Florida Panthers. Thank you to all of the PR staffs over there for providing these guests for us, providing these athletes. And to the athletes, thank you for your willingness and your openness to answer the questions that I've had because we've had some really fun conversations so far this year. And I look forward to more of those and learning more and more about our local athletes going into next year. To the folks here at Bally Sports Sun who sort of validated what it was that I was doing here. Jason Jackson, Steve Goldstein, Jessica Blaylock, Will Manso, and Eric Reed. My co-workers who have helped me feel like this is something legitimate that we're doing and taking the time out of their days to have these conversations with me and continue to prop up Miami Miked Up. I'm incredibly appreciative. And all of the rest of the names, by name here, in order of appearance. Israel Gutierrez, Stefan Adams, Chris Cody, Nikias Duncan, Michael McCulloch, Jennifer Alvarez, Ruthie Polinsky, Dontrell Willis, Mike Ryan, and Sarah Spain. Guys, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Just listen to that list. I'm so unbelievably humbled that so many great people from within this industry took their time 
to have conversations with me and opened up. And again, I have to thank Bally Sports for the platform because those conversations wouldn't happen without it. And to all of you listening, like I said, to be able to get to do something like this as a job is something that I definitely do not take for granted whatsoever. And without the support of you guys that you've shown on social media and otherwise, it, it wouldn't happen. I mean that very, very seriously. So I like to think that we're building our own little family of listeners around Miami Miked Up. You guys have been really, really kind to me in the DMs and elsewhere. Uh, and I hope you'll all come back in 2022 ready for a really awesome year. So like whose line is it anyway, this top 10 is all made up and the points don't matter. So no particular order here, just trying to tell the complete story of Miami Miked Up in 2021 while making it into a fun little list. So number 10, the very first episode we launched, ESPN's Israel Gutierrez stopped by the studio to join the show. And Izzy has become a mentor of mine over the last couple of years. I'd consider him a friend. I believe that he would, maybe he wouldn't, but I can't thank him enough for validating the show right off the bat the way that he did. I mean, I'm obviously sort of doing it publicly now, but nonetheless, he told a bunch of great stories about his experience growing through this business, and I'd say this with just about any of these shows, particularly the ones with media folks as opposed to the athletes, that if you miss the full interview, go back and listen, because they're pretty evergreen, and this conversation was really a fun one. So this clip is a personal favorite. Izzy's telling the story of covering the 2000 Marlins as a fresh-faced reporter in the industry and nearly getting himself into some actual trouble with one of the players. That first season that you covered the Marlins, all of a sudden you go from a college kid who's covering what turned out to be a bunch of high-profile athletes, but at the time were just your peers, mm -hmm. right? Fellow college kids, and obviously legendary coaches along the way as well. But in stepping in as you know a 22-year-old, like you just said, to, to covering a team on a daily basis, what about that experience do you think helped you the rest of the way? Like, were there specific mm -hmm. things about that daily coverage of, of a baseball team that was relatively new that had yes won a world series but now was in a little bit of an in-between phase yeah. at that time uh a lot sure <laughs> uh, i remember when i first got the uh the job basically because they were trying to hire um a marlins beat writer and they just couldn't find one that they liked and then they offered it to me um i remember i went out and bought like a baseball for dummies book because <laughs> i wanted to like get the lingo down like is there any sort of jargon that i need to know if mm -hmm. i'm in that clubhouse and i realized that that was just a bit much right like uh just be just know what you know and yep. admit what you don't and you know learn the stuff that you don't that's great be, advice though because right. that's that's huge in this industry yeah you just come across as disingenuous um and so I, I, what i learned mostly was sort of the fragility of the egos um even though they know you, like you, right? Um, anything can change that. Yes. And it could be just a comment. Um, and this, I, I am embarrassed by this constantly or all the time when I tell the story, but I remember one time, um, I'm, I'm sure we can probably just go back and, and pinpoint it. We were in Tampa Bay. It was a road trip, I think pretty, maybe close to the all-star break, uh, but before it. And Derek Lee had had this issue where he just couldn't hit a home run with anybody on base. All his home runs were solo home runs, solo home runs. Okay. I think in this game, he finally hits a three-run shot. And so it's me, Dave O'Brien, who's now in Atlanta, has been mm -hmm. covering the Braves forever, and Mike Phillips at the time, who was covering uh, the Marlins for the Herald. 
And so we're kind of standing there, and I, it's like Mike Lowell's to the left, and they were standing behind Derek Lee and like Kevin Millar's over here, something like that. And I said to Derek, and with a hundred percent good intentions, oh no! I said, "What did you do? Just pretend there was nobody on base?" Oh no! <laughs> Oh no! Because no. it seems like a you know normal mind trick, right? You just tell yourself, "All right, there's nobody on," you know, because people kept asking him about it. It's like, "Oh, are you getting the solo home runs?" He's like, "Hey, what are oh, you going to do?" Oh, but it's no, it's a, it's too and sensitive. So I immediately hear ooh, like the whole anybody who was within earshot. And I was like, oh, no. And like the other guys, the writers, I felt them like back away like and just up. kind of like leave me there. And then Mike Lowell says, how many home runs you hit in the majors? Right. Is he? And I'm just like, well, that's not what I meant. And so for like a couple of weeks, I had to like sort of just deal with Derek Lee being standoffish with me. And I thought he got it. Like I thought. Yeah. And I was like, Derek, like, did you really think I was trying to insult you? Like, I'm trying to come in here and be this smart ass kid. And he's like. Yeah, I thought you were trying to be funny. And I was like, I swear on my life, I was not. I apologize. Yeah, I was like, just it, trying to be your friend. I was you just, know? It, yeah, it's like if I were there, right. if I were, you know, trying to play mind tricks with myself, I'd be like, all right, there's nobody on base, whatever. I'm just going to hit see ball, hit ball. Mm -hmm. So that was my, but that's when I learned, okay, you've really got to be delicate, not because they're bad people or like fragile people, like I said, for the fragility of the egos. It's just they're being judged constantly, right? right. And so you don't realize what that, how that weighs on somebody until you see it on them. Like it filtered into the daily conversation. It's just like, oh yeah, you shouldn't have said that because that makes me feel like, you know, I do when I read some criticism in a paper mm -hmm. or see it on TV. So I think I learned that early on and just how, how to manage that, how to, for lack of a better term, sort of manipulate that and not, not you know, just create good relationships and understand that, you know, you're there get across to the athletes and the coaches why you're there and that you are not there to, you know, to make anything worse for them. Right. You're just there to, 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 to watch it and, you know, to record it. Number nine. So I plan to have some more local media friends on the show over the next couple of months, but I felt very lucky to have both Will Manso and Ruthie Polinski join this year. Will, of course, as I mentioned before, works both at Bally Sports Florida and Sun and WPLG Local 10. Ruthie, of course, the sports anchor at NBC6. And as someone who started my career working at WSVN, Channel 7 down here in Miami, as a producer behind the scenes, I have seen some of the work that goes into being successful at the local news level, and these two are as good as it gets. So I could have used a whole bunch of stories here, but instead... I'm just going to use this space to take a victory lap for both me and Ruthie. So here's Ruthie and I after the Dolphins improved to three and seven, predicting they'd get to seven and seven, which is where they stand as of today. Miami Dolphins, we were going to have this conversation last week, but you were covering the Thursday night football game between them and the Baltimore Ravens. And it's funny because as of that conversation, they were two and seven, one of the worst teams in the league two is on the bench again what's going on there they're going to get annihilated by baltimore and now all of a sudden three and seven a wide open afc Tua looks really good against the ravens the defense is all of a sudden coming together and you got four straight games coming up in the jets the panthers the giants and the jets that are all very winnable football games on paper 
on paper. Talk me talk me out of believing that the Dolphins or maybe no, you won't. No. Maybe you won't. Maybe you're about to talk me into it. Are are the Dolphins just going to get back to 500? Like what do you expect over this stretch of the next few games? Listen, I am the queen of optimism. I like to call myself, um, which is maybe irresponsible journalism at times. No, it's me. It's no. fine. We're in the same boat. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where I saw that the way they played, and and you know, I we're talking about the way that the Hurricanes bounced back, and I, I'm looking at this Miami Dolphins team, and I'm everyone's so upset about the way that this team is being coached, and the way that they're, the way that this team has taken obviously a very clear step back uh, in Brian Flores' third season, but. You know, when I'm at the game, I don't get to watch the broadcast in the moment. I like to kind of just watch the game and then I'll go back and listen to the broadcast later. And when I went back and listened to it, there's a moment in the fourth quarter where the camera catches Christian Wilkins and Raekwon Davis dancing around Mm -hmm. on the field. And Troy Aikman says, when you're a quarterback and you see the defense dancing in the fourth quarter, you're not having a very fun time right now. And Joe Buck went right back and he said... This is not a two and seven team. You would never mm. know that this team is two and seven looking at the way that they've played this game. And I and I feel that like to my core. I, I watch these guys and we're not in the locker room the way that we typically are when we cover an NFL team. So it's really hard to get a feel for are these guys OK? Like when you're losing a lot of games, it's really hard to come and you know, get wins and, and be positive. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we haven't really had a good feel for what this team mentality is. Um, but they've been doing a really good job of telling us that they're sticking together and that they're coming in on Mondays and, and turning things around and making corrections and practicing hard. And I felt that on Thursday, you see that this team, Brian Flores has not lost this locker room by any means. They are playing their hearts out for him. Um, And, you know, there's so much we can talk about when you look at the quarterback situation and what's going on there, the offensive line, the makeup of the team. Um, But I'm telling you, there is a real possibility that this team could be seven and seven and fighting for a wild card spot down the stretch. And, and I think there's, a lot of reasons why I think if the defense they've clearly switched their defensive strategy in the last two games. So Mm -hmm. if they can keep that up and they continue to just go to get the quarterback, uh, the way that they've did to Tyrod Taylor and Lamar Jackson, um, that's a real scary thing when you when you have the ability to blitz the way that this team has been blitzing when you have Byron Jones and Xavier Howard back there. Um, it's, that's a fun style of defense to play. And, you know, it's funny. That's kind of what the Ravens hang their hat on. Yep. Um, so it was really fun to see the Dolphins kind of give it, give them a taste of it. And, you know, the Ravens didn't play great. It was a Thursday game. It was a short week. Um, the Ravens are kind of known to maybe play down to their opponent every once in a sure. while. Um, but that was a good win. I don't care what anyone says. That was a good win against a very good football team. And and, and the guys knew it. Uh, the guys knew it after the game telling us. It's, I even asked um, – Javon Holland after the game I'm like does this feel a little different than last week's win and he was like yeah he was like they're both big wins but this this was a really big win for us to get two wins together against a playoff team um that feels good for those guys and you better believe they're going to carry that juice they got a little they got a few days off this weekend um to kind of regroup get healthy that's good for Tua of course too of course um but if the way that the defense is bringing the juice it gives the offense juice too I don't care what anyone says Number eight, one of the craziest experiences of my life was conducting interviews at Media Day for both the Panthers and the Heat. Chronologically, the Panthers were first, and I do have to say, every single guy on that team was an absolute delight to speak with. They were all 
open, kind to me and our crew, and, and really just a great group. There were a few questions and answers that I really enjoyed that were repeated amongst all the guys, and the one that always got my juices flowing was when they spoke about their rivalry with the Lightning. So, here is Sasha Barkov on what the Panthers learned from playing against the Lightning so much last season, headed into this current NHL season. When we talk about this team and we talk about sort of the expectations, obviously, they're pretty high this season, and you guys are coming off of one of the best seasons in franchise history, frankly, regardless of of what that finish was in the playoffs. But ultimately, did not get to the place that you guys wanted to be. What do you believe that you guys have to do if you could give me two different things? What are two things the Panthers have to do to be able to overcome the obstacle of the Tampa Bay Lightning? That's a good question. Like I, I know we learn a lot, uh, a lot from them playing against them so many times. Uh, Last year, eight times in the regular season and then six times in the playoffs. That's like 14 games against one team in one season. Uh, obviously, you learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way they play, the way the way they find the way to win the games, uh, even if they're not at their best, that's that's one thing we learn from them. Like uh, I mean, doing those critical decisions uh, right, uh, I think they they did that better than than we did in the playoffs, and they just found a way. So found a way to win those those games, and that's all that counts. Like it doesn't matter if you hold on to the puck like ninety percent of the game, and then they score the goals. That's win for them. So I would say like those those things were are the are the things we learn from them. And obviously, it's we're we're not trying to be like them. We're trying to be play our own game, play at our whatever we can do on the ice uh, as well as possible. Number seven, maybe our loosest episode so far, and in turn, one of my favorites of the year, where it sort of felt like, and and really just was, two friends hanging out. It was with Chris Cody, the producer from the Dan Lebetard Show with Stu Gatz. Lots of laughs in this one, and some sentimental moments as well. I personally really enjoyed hearing about Chris's path to the show, but... As a member of Lebetard Show fandom, I do have to share this clip of Chris speaking about the incredible relationship that the show has built with its fans. There's such a bond between the Lebetard Show members and then the fans. Yeah. And and there seems to be a really a u- Yeah, a really unique one, right? It, it's something that you don't see across any sort of media, let alone sports media. Do you think that that familial environment is why do you think that it's almost sort of glomming on to what feels like part of your own family i mean i know how that that feels for me as someone down here in south florida dude i have become legitimate friends like there's like people there's just fans of the show there's people in the media that like the show like right. you're one of them mike cuno from cbs like mm-hmm. there's people that i've become friendly with because they like the show so we get to know each other and and then there's the fans of the shows like i've become friend like there's i have half a dozen phone numbers of people right. that i've just met through this and i'm like this is a decent dude like this is a right. cool person and then like i dm like our fans are so cool and funny and they get the show. They, they help produce the show so much. We, mm. So many things that we talk about are like tweets that come from some fan of the show. That's like, this is right up your guys alley. And I didn't see it, but I see it once they send it to me. So it's like our fans. I mean, I don't have a lot of experience with other shows, but from everything you hear, like our, our fans are, they are a dedicated, faithful group. And, uh, they're the best. Number six. So like I mentioned earlier, it's been really special to get to speak with some of my coworkers here at Bally Sports Florida and Sun. 
to learn more about their paths as to how they ended up on your television. So in order of appearance, again, it was Jason Jackson, Steve Goldstein, Jessica Blaylock, Eric Reed, and Will Manso. And they all told some really incredible stories. I've narrowed it down to two just for time purposes, and I'm, I'm keeping it on the same subject. So Jessica Blaylock and Eric Reed tell you about their journeys from kids who loved sports into the stars you see on your television today and over the last number of years. When this was all just a dream, when this was all just something that you wanted to do, when did you know that broadcasting and specifically sports broadcasting was something you wanted and and how in the high school and college years were you trying to achieve it? Yeah, I'm one of those people who I've always said I feel super lucky and super blessed in the sense that I really always knew what I wanted to do. Mm. I knew in seventh grade that I wanted to do broadcast journalism. You had the option in middle school to take a couple of different electives. I took a journalism class. I had the chance to do the morning announcements. So cool. And I will never forget, I was walking through the hallway in middle school and someone was like, hi, Jessica. And I didn't know who they were. And I just assumed they had seen me doing the morning announcements. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm hooked. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, 100%. Um, I was always that kid that, you know, wanted to be the center of attention mm-hmm. and that wanted to be in pictures and that never shied away from crowds and just kind of absorbing that energy and, and seeing how much fun you could have being in front of a camera. I knew in middle school that I wanted to do broadcast journalism. And then in high school, I continued to take journalism electives. And when I was 17 years old, now I'm dating myself with this. Oh boy. Uh, When I was 17 years old, junior in high school, it was the 99-2000 season for Florida basketball. And I fell in love with that Mm. team that eventually lost to Michigan State um, in the national championship game. And obsessively followed Gator basketball that year, just fell in love with the team. And I remember thinking to myself, how much fun it would be to get to follow along on a team's journey and do interviews with players and, uh, you know, get to cover sports, not just be a journalist, but get to cover sports. Mm. So when I was 17, I knew I wanted to do sports journalism. And that was really before it it blew up big time, right? right? I mean, this was back in 1999, over 20 years ago. So I, as soon as I got to the University of Florida, I immediately declared journalism as a major, knew that whatever opportunities I had to do anything sports-related, I was going to do. And again, with this being the time frame that it was, there wasn't necessarily a sports journalism degree. Right. You just got a degree in news journalism Mm -hmm. and anything you wanted to do sports wise was on your own time now there's crazy awesome sports journalism programs the university of florida has a partnership with the sec network i mean there's all this stuff but Mm -hmm. back then it was like okay cool you want to do sports come and pick up the camera that weighs 70 pounds load it into the back of your car go to the event on your own shoot some stuff record yourself Put it together, you know, do whatever you need to do to make the it happen. The one man band. Exactly. Yeah. But I just, knowing that's what I wanted to do, I just threw myself into it and had the chance at Florida to cover our baseball team for two seasons. I did some tennis. I did some golf. I did women's volleyball, which was amazing, and eventually got to do some men's basketball. Um, and on top of that, work behind the scenes for ESPN for several events. And mm. that's kind of how I got into 
my job path once I graduated from college. Clear when we listen to these games and and through this conversation, the, the passion that you have for the sport and for the team. So what is it about this job that has kept you that way when it's not 1988, it's 2021, and we're still having this conversation about the same job, and your energy is like it's your first day, like you're a kid in a candy store. I am. I really am. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, I've grown older in that candy store, but uh, you know something, I, I got I to tell you, thank you for your kind words. I, of course. This is going to sound like I'm you know, saying it to say it, and I'm not. I, I, I live this way. I, I am more grateful, more humble, and more joyful in my job right now than I have ever been. Because the longer you get in this journey, the more appreciative you are of the journey. And, you know, I started this, this thing a long, long time ago. I, I was, I guess, weird as a kid. I was just infatuated with radio play-by-play. I grew up in New York listening to, you know, Merle Harmon call Jets games on radio and, and Marv Albert call the Knicks. Amazing. As an 11-year-old kid, my dad bought season tickets to the Jets the year they drafted Joe Namath, right? And now I'm 11 and a half years old, sitting at Chase Stadium with my dad when the Jets beat the Raiders in one of the greatest football games I've ever seen, the AFL championship game in December of 68. And when the Jets won the game, my, my pop looked down at me and said something about going to the Super Bowl. I said, bring me back a program, Dad. He goes, you're coming with me. Oh. Super Bowl was in Miami. Super Bowl three at the Orange Bowl. Okay, I was at that game, That's one of the most so historic cool. football games in the history of the sport. Uh, it really, that was the game that forced the two leagues to merge, the AFL and the NFL. Later that same year, I'm sitting with my dad at Madison Square Garden at game seven of the 1970 NBA Finals against the Lakers when the New York Knicks won their first championship. Those two things sort of underline a youth with a dad that loves sports um we i enjoyed like some of my best times in life have been in football stadium parking lots tailgating <laughs> right. i was working or not i've just always been around sports um you know as a basketball player my career didn't get very far so i i sort of knew early how can i stay involved and and the radio angle became the thing for me and you know how i actually got involved this is a great story i, I was it. at Ithaca, i was at ithaca college and it's my sophomore year at Ithaca College in the same town as Cornell University. Uh, they were playing Penn in an Ivy League basketball game. And a buddy of mine with a car, uh, I talked him into driving me to the game because my former high school coach was now the head coach at the University of Pennsylvania. So I wanted to visit with him and hit that team was a year removed, believe it or not, from the 1977 Final Four. Last Ivy League team to ever go to a Final Four. Wow, okay. So I go to the game, Cornell against Penn. I don't remember anything about the game, but what I'll never forget is looking across the court at Barton Hall in Ithaca and seeing the Cornell radio booth. And there were two broadcasters there. One I didn't know. The other was a senior at Ithaca College. And I'm a sophomore at the time. The minute the game ended, I darted down the bleachers, ran across the court, up the other set of bleachers. And I I whistled them over. I said, Dave, what are you doing? He said, I do color for the home games. And I get academic credit. There was a, a class at Ithaca College called Radio Workshop. If you could get an internship, you get a credit or two. So I said, how'd you get the internship? He said, the play-by-play guy is the news director. He, I got it from him. I said, could you introduce me to him? So like on the spot, That's it. I, I, I meet the guy. I say, I, I love this internship next year. So the next week I'm in his office. He says, if you stay up over the summer 
and do a news internship, I'll give you the Cornell basketball internship next year. Amazing. So I stay up in Ithaca that summer. And now it's my junior year at Ithaca College, and I'm going to do color on the 15 Cornell basketball home games. I am home. This is a good story to tell. I'm Thanksgiving time. I am home on my Thanksgiving break okay. on Long Island with my, at my parents' house. The telephone rings. I pick it up, and it's the general manager of WHCU in Ithaca saying, Eric, uh, Al Beller, who's the play-by-play guy, his wife is about to have a baby. Uh, could you drive up to Syracuse and do the season opener by yourself, Cornell at Syracuse? Get I said, I'll be here. I hang up the phone, right? I get in my car and now I embark on a five hour trip right. up into central New York. I took a buddy with me, picked him up in New York City. We got caught in a blizzard, Jeremy, <laughs> that I'm seeing like one car after another slide off the highway. And I'm about an hour out of Syracuse and my car hits a patch of ice and I do a 360 into a snowbank. And I'm like, how am I going to get to a good Samaritan help pull us out? And I showed up. This is even before the this carrier. Is like a movie. This is at Manly Fieldhouse. I show up maybe 10 minutes before tip-off time. I sit down and I do the Cornell Syracuse game. I got to do one other game like that that year, Cornell at Niagara. I did by myself. The rest of the season, I did color at home. Wow. Well, wow. by the time I'm a senior at Ithaca College, now the radio station that was owned by Cornell University, the general manager was a great man. I learned so much from a man named Don Martin. He said, listen, next year, we don't want the news director to travel anymore for basketball. We want you to do the, basketball, the road games on your own and you do color at home. And so here I am a student at Ithaca College. I'm doing Ithaca High School football for one radio yep. station on Friday nights. I'm doing Cornell basketball. So as a college student, I'm working at another college and also ingraining myself into that community doing high school football. And when I graduated from Ithaca College, the GM of the radio station who had done Cornell football for like 30 years in a row, calls me into his office and says, Eric, I'm retiring. I am gonna name you the play-by-play guy for Cornell football, Cornell basketball and Cornell lacrosse. And for a whopping $10,000 a year in 1979, <laughs> I signed on the dotted line and man, I want to tell you, I had a blast being the play-by-play voice of Cornell football, basketball, and lacrosse. And of all the things that happened to me there, there was one game. I, we had a professor at Cornell who loved college basketball, right? And he was blind. So he would come to the Cornell home games with a little earpiece plugged into his transistor radio. And that's how he would follow the games. So I got to know him. His name was Professor Daniel Sisler. I'm doing the game Cornell at Columbia. And Professor Sisler was in New York to give a lecture and his handler brings him courtside. I was doing the game by myself and said, Professor Sisler doesn't have his radio. He can't hear your call. Can he sit down at the table with you and listen to the game? And of course I had an extra pair of headphones. I said, absolutely. So could you imagine, I am sitting there with a guy that is a diehard fan who cannot see and he's got headsets listening to me. I'm like going to cry. If any any one night explained to me what that job doing radio play by play is all about, it was that describing the game for people who can't see it. Number five, let's head back over to the Levitard Show universe for just a minute. Sometimes things come together for this show a week or two in advance. Other times it's about 30 minutes. And this is an example of the 30 minutes. Mike Ryan, the EP of the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gatz, 
turned himself into the preeminent University of Miami newsbreaker this offseason, and he's the one who broke the news of the Mario Cristobal hire as the head coach at the University of Miami. Well, after that, I sort of jokingly tweeted at him to come on the show. He DM'd me a few hours later while I was buying body wash at Target and said, hey, I can record now. So I ran to the studio. 30 minutes later, we were rolling. And here is Mike explaining how and why he pushed himself into the game at the University of Miami. I am not really cut out for that insider life. And it's not it wasn't my intention. I, I think my how it happened organically and I kind of it grew into this force of its own was I was just plugged in, mm -hmm. being that I'm a media member, being that I'm a booster. This was the first year of me actually giving as much financial support as I possibly could to a university I did not go to. I went to Miami, Dade College. <laughs> I'm, I'm a shark. Um, but that's what this school represents to so many people, as you know, yep. Jeremy. I, I envy the, the amount of pride that you had in UCF. Uh, I, I love the atmosphere there. Miami is just not that kind of program. And I love this program through my youth. And I kind of felt like, well, I need to get out off of the sidelines and, and into the game. This is not the Mike Ryan Miami story, but this is just a, as a means to explain how I got really involved. Well, people want to hear practices. that, though. Yeah, people want to hear how you got involved this way and, and this plugged in. I was going to practices because of my standing in the media, and then I, I, I wanted to give money to the program because, obviously, we were struggling to compete in the Coastal, and I, I just wanted to – I didn't want to complain like a lot of fans do and not – feel like I could do something about it. I would travel with the team. I would network. I would go into the, the 72 club and, and I would talk to other boosters and I would hear things. And thankfully, I may not be Dan Lambert uh, when it comes to resources, but I have an incredible platform with the Dan Lebetard show with Sue Gatz. It's the most popular sports podcast in America. And we do the local hour a la carte on purpose. And I would use that platform to talk about specific Miami things. Number four, this podcast launched during baseball season, which meant the Miami Marlins were always going to be crucial from episode number one. Jazz Chisholm Jr. was here for that episode with Israel Gutierrez, which was a great way to get going. He's always a good time. We also had fun chats with Brian De La Cruz through translation and Rookie of the Year candidate Trevor Rogers during the regular season. And then, just days after signing his extension this offseason, Miguel Rojas joined the show. So, I decided to throw together a few of my favorite bits from these interviews. Specifically, it's Jazz talking stardom, Rogers talking music, and Rojas talking Marlon's future. I hope you all enjoy. When you say you were trying to sort of squeeze yourself into a box, is that something in terms of on-field flair? Was that who you were off the field? What what did that mean when you said you were, you know, you struggled? Was that was that an on-field thing? I mean, like, right now I'm being me, but I feel like I'm more mature and I know what to do and what not to do now. When I was younger in the minor leagues, you know, like just going out there being 170 pounds, hitting 25 <laughs> yeah. in the minor leagues, like, and letting people know from when that wasn't even a thing to do, you know, like first homer in the in professional baseball is like my first or second at bat or something at home, first at bat at home. And just like went deep and did a whole walk to first base, bat <laughs> flip, you know, like 18 years old. The whole thing, right. Won the whole thing. But like, and I had to learn, I was trying to learn how to 
like not rub people the wrong way. You know what I mean? And that was really hard for me because mm-hmm. I was so used to just like in high school, hey, guys, just be yourself, do your thing, like hitting homers, like small kid hitting homers and just pimping it and doing his thing out there, you know, making plays and not caring and showing off. You know what I mean? Like that was always me. So when I came into professional baseball and they told me like I got to stop doing that, mm. it, was, it was hard to transition to, especially like when they told me to stop doing it. You know what I mean? Like I was like 21 at that point and they told sure. me, hey, we need you to like become a big leaguer now. Like you're, it's about to be time to call you up and we need you to like cut down on too much of the flair and too much of this. But when I was doing the flair, that's when I do my thing and I, and I play my game and I stay right. smooth. But when I'm not, it's just like all tight and mechanical and I can't do stuff. Well, you're not the only guy in the bigs who's that way, right? You have you, you have Fernando Tatis, Ronald Acuna Jr., all these guys with personality. And in the last few years, but I feel like almost particularly this year, we've seen baseball really embrace that in in a real way. How do you think that that guys like you, guys obviously at their stature of Acuna, Tatis, some of these other guys that play with flair, how do you think that they can sort of transcend just from baseball superstardom back to the superstardom that, you know, some of the guys from when you were growing up and I was growing up had that, that major stardom. Like, that's what I really want baseball to become. Like I want baseball to become like when you're walking into the field, they got guys taking pictures of you and posting and being like, Oh my God, like look at this guy with the drip today. Or, Oh, like you just saw, uh, let's say, a Ronald Lacuna goes sitting courtside at a basketball game. Mm. Oh, Ronald Lacuna is in the building, and they, like, and everybody should know who that is because Ronald Lacuna is a superstar. Right. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, that's what baseball should be like. When LeBron James would be on the TV talking about, like, I wanted to be like Ken Griffey Jr. Like, what? Like, mm-hmm. hear a basketball player say that? That's like, that's like dope. Like, yeah, that was the guy, right? Yeah. So like. I want to be someone who basketball players be like, yeah, I want it to be like, like Jazz Chisholm. Like, I love Chisholm's that. out there as smooth as ever. I don't yeah. want to be like him. Like, and, but the, he's a basketball superstar. And then that would be like, cool. And then we meet up, probably let him come hit some BP one day or something like, and then everybody's together. And then it's like a whole city comes together. You were interviewed on Marlins Live in the pregame show a little while ago after one of your uh, starts where you returned. And you talked a bit about your music taste. And you said the Eagles were your favorite band, I believe. You also yeah. mentioned George Strait. You mentioned a little gospel. I need to hear more about your music taste, how you became such an Eagles fan. And are there any other bands like them that you listen to? Some of my teammates said I have a, an old man soul. Uh, I, I got that from my dad. Mm. Um, he, he grew up in that era. Uh, and when, when I was younger, we would take on long long road trips to like travel ball tournaments and we yep. would just blare that music and he would be like trying to play play the guitar and try and sing <laughs> it i'm like dad you don't need to sing it they they sing it pretty good as is you don't need to <laughs> but uh i've had for what it's worth i've had the exact same conversations my dad uh <laughs> my dad is a big springsteen fan and mm-hmm. so we would get in the car on these long road trips to travel ball, right? We'd be here in South Florida driving up to Fort Myers. You, you know the difference, right? Jupiter, all those places. And, you know, we'd drive up north and, yeah, three hours of Springsteen with my dad going, oh, boom, run, you know, the whole thing. So yeah. <laughs> I completely understand what you're talking about. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it started with the Eagles and then it just slowly dripped from there. The, then it 
started with like the Doobie Brothers, Electric Light Orchestra, oh, man. a little bit of Doobie Gray, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on. It's just, just listening to those growing up and just hearing how good that music was. It's just something that I'll listen to. It'll, it'll always be my favorite genre of music. You've got spring training baseball music taste. All that is the stuff that plays at spring training, not the yeah. stuff that plays at the actual <laughs> stadium come the regular season. You know, you mentioned when you signed in the day that that we were at the ballpark with Kim Ang that the the organization has used the words with you like very active and all in. I want to know what do those words mean to you when when you say you expect the team to be very active or all in? What type of acquisitions do you expect to be made? What, what do you expect from the organization to support you and the rest of these guys who are competing? Well, yeah, I mean, I, it's, not, it's not just that I, that I hear those words. I think it's a part of the process that we are right now, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, they took over the new ownership, took over in 2018. So it's been uh, almost uh, full four years now, you know? It's 18, mm-hmm. 19, 20, and 21 um we have a lot of talent we have the the ground right we have the floor so we know uh what we can do from now on where we have the opportunity to taste a little bit of the of the postseason but uh, we barely was over 500 so there's 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 areas and things that we need to get better at and i think the organization saying that they're going to be really active what i'm expecting is for them to put the best team that we can put uh, without forgetting about the, the process, you know? That's mm-hmm. the thing. Like, we can't really forget about what the process is going to mean for this organization because we, we're seeing more guys and more guys that they drafted and they're really close, you know? Mm-hmm. With J.J. Blade is in AA already, is in the Arizona Four League. We see Cameron Meisner. We, got, we see guys that are approaching the big leagues. So we can never forget that it's going to be a combination of a lot of things. And I think the key word for me is going to be competition. Hmm. So in this organization, competition is going to be the key because um, if you sign free agents, that means that's going to be competition for the young players. Young players are going to put a, a lot of pressure on us, the, 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 the old players, that we don't want to give up our job for a, for a young player in a, you know, in a, in a, in a good environment because right. uh, we're a family, right? But uh, I, still, I still being pushed for by Jose Devers, Jose Salas, all of these guys who are coming behind me they just sign a, a first round pick who's a shortstop who can be in my position in like in one or two <laughs> years. Who knows? Right. right. So for me, the competition is going to be so critical for us in spring training where you're going to see Jesus Sanchez fighting for a job over uh, De La Cruz. And that's mm. only going to get them better because they're going to compete against each other, knowing that, I mean, whoever is the best player at that time is going to be uh, part of the team to win a championship. Hopefully, everybody's team, but we know. You know, if they bring a couple outfielders, maybe a, an infielder, maybe a catcher, maybe a, a, a reliever, whatever mm-hmm. the, whatever that means is a, a small competition for other guys who are already in the team. So that's why something that I say, and I mean it, I, I mean it when, when I say that I didn't sign this contract to be the everyday shortstop, right? Because I'm not going to, I'm not going to be selfish that, I, that I'm going to be thinking about um, that I want my position knowing that there's a lot of shortstops in the market, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what the destiny is going to be, and I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm Kim or, or Derek or Bruce saying, okay, we're going to spend on this guy, and we're going to go and get Correa. We're going to go and get a story. We're going to go and get Javi Baez. 
So for me, it's like whatever they can bring to the team who's, uh, who's the best fit, I'm able to move somewhere so I can make this team a winner. Because, uh, I mean, bottom line, that's, that's all we want. We want to win. And if it's with me ashore, great. If it's with me at somewhere else, that's, that's what we want to get. So uh, for me, that's, the, that's my whole mentality. My mentality is hopefully we can get all the guys that we can get and for, for the talent to get better and fight for a job and hopefully they win a job and for us to get a, a better team. Number three, Sarah Spain, like Israel Gutierrez, has become a mentor slash friend in this business, and she was our last fresh interview of the year. We spoke for almost an hour about her journey, passions, TV shows, Christmas movies. I mean, it was really sort of all over the place, but to be honest, I was most grateful that she was willing to discuss a real topic with me, which is the constant barriers and harassment that women face in this industry and outside of it. I don't think that there could have been a better person to facilitate this conversation than Sarah, and that's why I'd like for all of you to listen back to it again. So this episode was mostly laughs. I'd recommend going back to hear all of that too, but here's Sarah and I's conversation on how we can all be better when it comes to women in sports. When you were first getting into the industry and you were coming up against some of these barriers to entry, what was maybe a a, a tough lesson or a great piece of advice that you received early on that sort of helped you penetrate through and be able to make headway the way that you did? I definitely was naive. Um, I even read some books about the industry and, you know, things that I should expect as a woman. And I think because I'd always been sort of just brash about like, if I work really hard and I do things really well, then there shouldn't be any problems. Right. And that had worked for me in junior high and high school and college, but I'm very privileged, right? I grew up in a great area. I got to go to an amazing Ivy league school. I worked my ass off and I, I, I worked for it, but like plenty of people who are smarter and better than me and everything could, could not have had those opportunities despite all of their hard work. So I was aware of that, but I think I really realized that when I started to get into sports and I moved back to Chicago after living in LA for six years to take a job at a startup website And despite not having a master's, despite not being a journalism major, despite never having covered a single team other than, you know, writing some articles for the Cornell Daily Sun about soccer and some other sports, just as a, just, we'll just, this is what they assigned me to because I was an athlete. Um, I started being sent straight into locker rooms of professional teams. So, you know, a lot of people, I envy that they were at like a college level or maybe even covering high school. Instead, my very first gig is, okay, go interview the Blackhawks, Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, the team's about to make this incredible turnaround. They're one year away from their first Stanley Cup in 50 years. So they are the talk of the town. And Holy cow. what I learned with that and the Bulls and the Cubs that year was that what I knew about myself and my own intentions and what I knew about who I was as a person didn't matter if what everybody else thought about me was something different, as unfair as that might be. And so being a woman, six feet tall, I got a big rack of lamb, can't put them anywhere, can't hide them, that's just (laughs) life, right? Um, And not having known any of the people in those rooms from coming up. I had been out of Chicago for six years. I was, you know, my high school was north of Chicago. I didn't grow up in the city. So other than Rick Tellender, whose kids went to my high school, who I knew, I'm in a room full of people. They're like, where'd she come from? And what's her deal? And I was also working for a startup website where the goal was to get the players, you know, kind of personalities and get them to be funny. It wasn't to ask, how's the penalty 
Kill doing or something right. like that. It was literally like, hey, Christopher Stieg, I heard you wrapped all of Fergie's Glamorous at the Halloween party without needing any teleprompter. Like, can you do some right now? So they're over in the other corner asking, you know, about the PK and I'm over here and Chris is like, I'm talking champagne. <laughs> and I, and that's what I was supposed to be doing. And I did it really well to the point where the Blackhawks started doing videos like mine because they realized fans loved it and they wanted to get to know the players, but that's not always going to ingratiate you to people who've been on the beat forever. And they're like, what is this? Right. And so unfortunately I had to deal with all the stuff you hear about. I was maybe in the clubhouse for two weeks, two and a half weeks. I don't think any of the players even knew my name. And I heard from someone who worked in the business that a longtime reporter had gone to the PR staff and said, I must be sleeping with one of them because they were giving me better answers. Unbelievable. Um, Again, I'm 27, I think. So I'm 27 and I'm talking to them like them and I'm not, you know, flirting and being weird. I'm just talking to them like, and maybe some 55 year old dude who's been at it for years just doesn't connect with them that way. Or maybe he's boring because he's been in there every day for 30 years, whatever. Um, So that was really hard for me. Same thing with the Cubs. I had issues where a, a friend of mine that I had made was in one of the meetings and the PR staff said that my boobs were distracting and she thankfully was in there and she's like, well, what's she supposed to do with them? <laughs> like, that's you know? crazy. And yeah. so it was all the stuff I had heard about, but for whatever reason, being as entitled as I was, I walked in, I'm like, I'm a division one athlete, Ivy league, work super hard, come in and ask good questions. Don't get in the way. I'm going to be fine. It's all the other people that get messed with. And as it turns out, it's not, it's about the other people. It's not really about you. And so that was a tough lesson, but the good advice I got was somebody who'd been in the business forever, Steve Cochran. And he said, just be so good that they can't say no to you. And so I came up a bunch of barriers. I had a lot of issues then getting access to the athletes and, and it was really tough. And then when I got hired by ESPN, come back in with ESPN credential, it's like, Oh, I guess I'm back. And now you can't say no. Um, so it was great advice from him and I took it. That's amazing. It, it it just it takes a a special level of perseverance, I imagine, to be able to do that. And it's not something that's easy. And I watch, especially now with the way that social media has blown up. Um, and, and you have taken part in the conversation in terms of trying to to halt some of the just right. awful language thrown at women in this business. Um, and outside of this business, just women right. on the internet in general, for the most part. I also want to just say really quickly, like one thing that I don't think people understand is how violating it is to women if they are not seeing themselves in a sexual way and don't want to present themselves that way to have it constantly received that way. So that at any point in your life, you could be interviewing someone, you could post a photo with some kids on the internet where you're just wearing a t-shirt, you could be doing charity work, like at any moment, you could see yourself as this entire being that is not about what, how someone is pursuing you or seeing you. And instead you'll immediately be reduced back to that. And especially for someone like me, who, for whatever reason, I probably should go to therapy for it. I don't know. Um, I don't really like being, um, sexualized. I like if I'm interested in someone showing that interest and then them giving it back, or I like to make it clear to people I'm not interested. I'm not one of those people who wants to like lean over a pool table and see how many people in the bar will check me out. Like, that's just not my thing. I like making people laugh. I like making a fool of myself and making people laugh. And so it was a real lesson in this industry to learn that like at any moment, no matter how I see myself and what I'm putting out there, that doesn't mean that I get back what I want. And that's not to complain because it's nice that people think I'm attractive. Like that's, I got a few years left of that still being the case. So like, thank you for people who think that, but like, truly that's not actually what I want. And it makes me really 
really uncomfortable a lot of the time. And I don't think everyone really understands that. So like, especially when you're young and you're just like finding yourself or you're uncomfortable in rooms that are like 99.9% men, they probably think it's a compliment. And what it is, is actually like really problematic for you as you're trying to figure out if it's your fault, what am I doing wrong? How should I act differently? But also like, will I not get hired if I'm mean or I turn people down? Like it's way more complicated than most people think. Well, it's a whole extra dynamic added to an industry that's hard enough on your your mental health of putting yourself out there to begin with, right? Right. Like think about the barrier that exists to public speaking for so many people, just in general. You sitting and listening to this right now, think about the nerves that you get in general for public speaking. Then thinking about continuing to rise on something like television or radio and knowing that more and more people might be listening. And think about the fear that goes into that to, to begin with. Now, just because you exist, you're Mm -hmm. being sexualized on top of that. And that's super degrading and diminishing about all of these other things that we just talked for the first 15 minutes of this about all of these other parts of your personality that you're trying to get out there to be able to become great at this. So if anyone's listening and has ever made any sort of comments on on the Internet or otherwise like this, it it is not uh, the compliment that you might think it is. Um, And we should be looking at people as entire human beings, please. Number two, most of you know this by now, but I am a baseball guy at heart. It's the first sport that really hooked me in. And while it started with McGuire and Sosa's home run chase, there was no time in my life where I was more obsessed with a team than the 2003 Marlins, led by a young stud on the hill named Dontrell Willis. He was one of my favorite players growing up, and now that I've met him through Zoom, I couldn't be happier that that was my choice. A whole bunch of you messaged me after this interview saying that it was your favorite to date, and I can't say that I can really find a way to disagree, to be honest with you. We covered crucial mental health conversation and other very real topics, but This was a moment to reminisce on one of the most fun people and fun times in Marlins franchise history. So here's a clip of D-Train on, well, hating the D-Train nickname. I'm about to turn eight years old when you get called up in May of 2003. And I remember being in my third grade class writing uh, little articles that I had for what I was calling ESPN Junior that I was handing out to my class because I was that dork, right? I was that dork who played baseball but already said, I'm probably not going to make the major leagues. I'll, I'll go ahead and be the ESPN guy. So that, that was the thought at the time. Um, and, and I remember it vividly, you coming up and providing a spark. So you're traded to Florida from the Cubs system in 2002. You're called up by May of 2003, and you have immediate success at the big league level. Could you – Take me back to what it felt like to be D-Train at 21 years old and thriving and what was this sort of immediate sprint to success? Um, first of all, like I, I get asked that a lot and I hated it the whole time. And let me really? let me explain it. Yeah, because it it felt like I'm a team guy. And you can ask anybody that's played with me on the Marlins, like they'll tell you it's like Don Trell's all about the team. So mm. As the success started to come and I saw conductor hats and people are whistling, train whistles at me at Publix. I mean, it was surreal. It's really outer body, but I just wanted to be for the team. So I felt like really singled out and I hated when people call me D-Train. I absolutely hated it. And, no. and listen, and, 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 and I mean no disrespect by it, but it was just like I, I didn't like them this talking about me. Sure, I like sure, our sure. team starting to be at the forefront and 
you know, it was it was crazy because AJ Burnett, who's the one that gave me the name D Train, he's like, dude, you're gonna we're gonna go as far as you take us. Like you have to welcome this. And then I started to be more warm to it. And you know, people stop me and tell me do the leg kick at the grocery yeah. store. I do it for it's anticlimactic, but whatever. Get you know, what I mean? just fun stuff like that. Yeah, just fun. But I just was happy that our team was getting the respect that it deserved. You know what I mean? And, and, and credit to our team, I think we responded well. We really turned it around and started playing better baseball. You saw the fans started coming back. It was like 25, 30,000 people when I'm facing Randy Johnson. It was traffic getting to the stadium. It's like, what the hell is going on here? Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So I was happy to be able to be a part of, of something that was an upstart. It was very cool. It was so special. Like there was no yeah. time like that. I remember. Oh, please, I don't want to tell you it's not a Santa Claus. I don't hate D Train. <laughs> I was just saying it, it. It it's it, it's levels to this. Like I just didn't. I, I I don't take compliments well. So this that whole thing and what you talking about Willis signs. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. It, it was a lot. It was a lot for me. And number one. Okay, so the Miami Heat. Spoke to nearly all of them just before the season, and and there are so many things that I would like to say about this group, especially at this point in the season, looking back actually at, at our conversations and the roles that everyone has had to play due to injuries and COVID, but man, this is a really great group of, of individuals. I, I was truly floored by the respect that they showed me and, and their willingness to be open in conversations, and nearly every single player was an open book. And there are three moments specifically that I want to take a moment to look back on here. So the first is actually a clip that wasn't shared all that much, uh, but I couldn't get over the way that P.J. Tucker glowed while talking about his son. I just he he built such a big fan in me and I, I could not be rooting harder for that guy. It may have been my favorite full heat interview. So if you guys want to go back and listen to just one of them, may I suggest the P.J. Tucker interview? But of course, there were two other sort of magic moments that you internet folks spread like wildfire. So first, Victor Oladipo shared the story of how he met Dwayne Wade at the White House under Barack Obama's administration and what his relationship with Dwayne meant. And of course, Dwayne ended up sharing this video himself, saying he'd never heard the story in this way before. And I mean, yeah, that's that's why it's here as part of number one. I mean, that's like the coolest thing that's ever happened to me ever in my whole life. Uh yeah, and then of course, lastly, how about a little shout out to Boy Wonder, Tyler Hero, Baby Goat. Uh, for those of you who remember, a little piece of our interview ended up across a whole bunch of different platforms, just about anyone you could think of, ESPN, Bleacher Report, New York Post, strangely. I, and, and to be honest with you, I still feel kind of funny about it. I still don't think it was as much of a salacious soundbite as, as it was portrayed. But hey, I, I, I'm going to be honest, I'm sort of grateful that it was. And to Tyler, if, if if for some reason you're listening to this or if anyone wants to relay the message, I am so glad that you have absolutely crushed it this season and backed up everything that you had to say. So anyway, here's all three, P.J. Tucker, Victor Oladipo, Tyler Hero, coming at you as the number one Miami mic'd up moment in 2021. Thank you all for listening all year long and to this episode. Happy holidays and happy new year. The best has yet to come talk to you in 2022 what is something recently off the court that has brought you joy oh this is so old of me but my son uh, 
<laughs> he just got he got all A's, man. I couldn't believe it because he's been such a bad student. But he moved <laughs> here. It must be Miami. I don't know what it is, but yeah, that Miami school system. Yeah, man. And he's uh he's doing he's doing really good in school. I'm like, I don't know, but I'll, it's I, I'll take it. So I, that's brought that brought me a lot of joy to see him happy and doing well in school. That's awesome. I'm happy to hear. It. What what grade is he and how old is he? He is in the fourth grade. He's nine. He's uh he's hilarious, but I, I'm telling you, I, I guess I guess when you know you're 36, it's like I got joy out of my son getting good grades finally. That was it was classic, and he's on the patrol, so he's like, I'm running late, I gotta go, like I'm gonna oh, be late. He's like, like he's on like, top of his stuff. Yeah, That's he's like, awesome. Like helps kids like cross the street stuff before. Like, yeah, like the, oh the safety so, patrol. Yeah, safety, safety patrol. patrol. So I gotta get there like I gotta get up at like six a.m. Oh, second. that's awesome though. She's so like, Dad, come on, I'm late. I'm late <laughs> he's doing good in school, so I can't complain. That's yeah. huge. Yeah, I mean having having that experience and seeing him thriving now, even yeah. if it's even if it's just moving down here, getting up at getting up at six a.m. will be worth it. Yeah, I think. it is. It is. So that's my joy. Being able to build a semblance of a relationship with Dwayne and what it means to now be playing here in Miami where he was the two guard for so long. It's unbelievable to have the opportunity to do that. Um, first and foremost, just to, it's just crazy. Like, you don't understand why you're drawn to some people, why you're drawn to some players, but I was always drawn to him for some reason in his game um, and his ability and his mannerisms, everything. Um, and I remember you know, when I was coming out of college, I mean, coming out of high school, it was it was tough for me. You know, I played power forward in high school. A lot of people huh. don't know that. And, you know, I couldn't really dribble or shoot until I got to college. And even in the NBA, I still had to kind of work on it. You know, I still, still had to make it, a, you know, kind of second nature. I had to become a scorer. Um, but coming out of high school, I didn't know where I was going to school. You know, and my, going into my senior year, I didn't have any offers. I remember University of Maryland had offered me a scholarship and then the beginning of my senior year, they took it away. I'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. That was funny. Um, and I remember Coach Green coming to a game and watching me play one time and he offered me right after the game. And I just never understood why he did it. And after doing research, you know, I found out that he coached Dwayne and Marquette and I was like, wow, that's crazy. And then a few weeks later, I got invited to the White House um, for a Father's Day dinner. I was mm-hmm. 15 of... of well, I was one of 15 students from my high school to go, get invited to go. When I came to the to the White House, I went through all the security. And a, and a woman was like, make sure you fix your shirt, because my shirt was on bunch. Make sure you fix your shirt. You might see Dwayne Wade when you come in here. And I said, what? What are you talking about? Everyone, we was looking around like, man, she's crazy. You know what she's talking about? We walk in, and we're on the, we're on the front lawn or the back lawn or the front lawn. or the I think it's the front lawn or the White House. Uh-huh. And... Uh, Obama has his big chef and he's cooking for all of us and they put us in sections and um, they separated us and me and Mike Cooley he was a he was a, a player on the high school on my football high school team in my class we were put in we were put in the section and and our two mentors in the section was Dwayne Wade and Antoine Randallel you don't know Antoine Randallel went to yeah. Indiana University and yeah. Dwayne Wade was sitting there. So How crazy was, is that? I remember sitting at the table and Dwayne goes, Do you guys have any questions? And I raised my hand. <laughs> I said, Well, how was how was it how was it having Tom Crean as a coach? And he's you doing your research. I know. And his and his exact words were, He's the reason why I am the man I am today. And I committed the next day Incredible. to university. So Dwayne has a lot of reason, a lot of um he 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 he, he has a lot of uh, uh of of responsibility for my success as a, as a human being, but most importantly as an athlete, um, just because he was a role model for me. 
You know what I'm saying? And he knows that. And, you know, I, you know, me and him have a, a very special relationship because I don't I don't bother him. I don't ask him for much. But when I need him, he always, he's always there. So um, he's just a great human. Mm. And, 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 and God has blessed him because of that. So I just hope, you know, now being here in Miami that, you know, I could have some or a little bit or any kind of success that he had. You know what I'm saying? Obviously, you know, he's he's done some monumental things here. And, um, you know, hopefully I can, you know, do a great job, you know, following in his footsteps. We've seen all sorts of different projections, right? right? Like some people are like, oh, this dude's a role player. Other right. people, this is a Hall of Famer. <laughs> Where do you see yourself? Where do you fit into the mix on that? I know you take it one day at a time, mm-hmm. but as you see yourself, what are the types of goals you have long term? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, I'm in the you know, same conversation as, as, as those guys, the young guys coming up in the league who can be, you know, all-stars, superstars one day. Um, you know, Luca, Trey. Um, ja, you know, those guys like that. I feel like I'm, you know, my name should be in that in that category too. Um, I put the work in and I'm just continuing to get better every single day. So, you know, I got a lot of goals in mind to be be an all-star one day and continue to, to chase my dreams. So I'm really excited to see where I, where I can go. Thank you for listening to Bally Sports Florida's Miami Miked Up with me, Jeremy Taché. And a special thank you to our national sponsor in Southeast Toyota. Visit your local Toyota dealers or toyota.com today and take advantage of the amazing deals on their full line of vehicles. No matter your destination, Toyota goes with you. Toyota, let's go places.